Welcome back to the Blue Line Millennial Podcast. Hope everybody's been well. Uh, to all of you Texans out there, stay strong in those frigid temperatures. I know that uh, uh, one of the three power grids in the country, Texas is one of them, and uh, it's under all sorts of strain and stress. So uh, big shout out to the people hanging tough in Texas. Joining me today, Arizona State University Professor uh, Michael Scott, who's currently a clinical professor for the Criminology and Criminal Justice Program and the Director of Problem-Oriented Policing. Professor Scott, thank you for joining me, sir. My pleasure. Uh, so just a couple items of housekeeping before we launch into it. I've been uh, started working on the website today. Uh, I have no idea how far I'm going to get in the next three days. I'm on call tonight, so we will see what happens once that uh, website is launched. Stay tuned over on the social media pages, Instagram and Facebook, uh, to see where that website goes. On the website is going to be an affiliate page uh, where I just kind of plug and bring attention to the uh, the people and the companies that have helped me out over the years uh, and, and hopefully link you over to those organizations. Uh, and then there's also going to be a blog post where we're going to cover everything from detective fashion uh, to patrol boots to guns and lights and all that good stuff. So uh, that's about it for, uh, for the housekeeping. Uh, so Mike, uh, one thing I like to do, sir, before we even launch into anything, is plug a nonprofit organization, and you've got a very special nonprofit that you want to talk about, the Problem-Oriented Center for Policing. Is that correct? Yeah, this is the Center for Problem-Oriented Policing. Uh, This is uh, center has now been around for a a little bit over 20 years, Um, and it was originally uh, established as a private nonprofit organization originally in the state of Georgia and subsequently moved to the state of Wisconsin. But when I when I moved to uh, joined ASU and came down to Arizona, uh, I actually integrated this center into Arizona State University. So it is a, a university-based center now. Um, it doesn't it doesn't um, so it doesn't depend on external funding. And but it is it's freely available. It's accessible to really anyone in the world. It's a publicly accessible website, uh, popcenter.org or popcenter at asu, or asu.edu. Um, and the basic idea behind it uh, was to to begin building for the police a body of knowledge, professional research-based and practice-based knowledge about how police can most effectively deal with all of the different, really hundreds of different types of social problems, uh, crime, disorder, accidental injury problems that the police are asked to deal with. And so that's what this website is really about. It's probably one of the most content-rich websites in, in policing, and it has just an abundance of information for, for uh, that's useful for everyone from a line officer up to a chief. Um, to provide some guidance as to what do we know about the different problems police have to deal with? Uh, what does the research say? Um, and what, what seems to work well in, in preventing or controlling this particular problem and what doesn't work so well? And it gives uh, people access both to the, the research and, importantly, to reports written by police officers in agencies all over the world reporting on their own experiences dealing with with these particular problems. So it's very much uh, a professional expertise sharing uh, website. Excellent. I had a a precinct commander who uh, really was big on on data, and uh, you can't begin to tackle a problem until you look at the information associated with that problem. And 
I had access to a, a couple of databases, but it sounds like Pop Center is a great spot for officers. Like, as you said, from the line officer on up to the chief, it's a great spot for them to get to so that they can look at more specifically some of the data uh, pertaining to the problems that, that they're experiencing and hopefully therein figure out a solution and begin to implement that solution to mitigate one of those problems that they're encountering. Does that sound about correct? That's exactly it. That's exactly right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, all of you, uh, all you line officers out there, uh, impress your sergeants and lieutenants and start pulling data. Uh, they will, they will like you. Um, and you can uh, attempt to have answers as opposed to just coming to them with problems. So, uh, <laughs> experiences on both sides of, uh, both sides of that coin is the complaining officer and the officer with, uh, maybe one too many good ideas, but, uh, that's okay. Now, uh, uh, Mike Scott, uh, Mike, you've been, uh, you were a police officer in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, you've served as the, the legal assistant to the uh, NYPD police commissioner, uh, a, a senior researcher for the uh, police executive uh, research forum. Uh, and you were the chief of police for a brand new agency uh, in Florida uh, in the early to mid 90s, uh, early to mid 90s, excuse me. Uh, you've had a very uh, colorful and storied career uh, that's really spanned the gamut of, of law enforcement and, and legal advising. Let's let's just go back. Um, actually, before we do that, I, I've, I almost forgot. I ask everybody uh, a series of questions. And uh, the first question that I'm going to ask you is, uh, you can have a drink with uh, anybody, living or dead. Uh, who are you drinking with? And more importantly, or as importantly, rather, what are you drinking? Well, because we're talking about policing, uh, and, and this quite sincerely, if I could, uh, the drink would definitely be Scotch whiskey. I knew and I, I knew I liked you, Professor Scott. I'm gonna I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna come back to ASU just to just to come under your uh, come under your uh, your education. There you go. There you go. Well, and the three people actually that I would uh, include in this uh, whiskey drinking session would be the three people who were responsible for founding. Uh, what we think of as the first organized police department. And that was uh, the London Metropolitan Police Department. So I'd, I'd, we'd be drinking back in 1829, and I'd be drinking with Robert Peel and Charles Rowan uh, and Richard Maine. So the three of them, one of them was uh, Robert Peel was really a, kind of a British aristocrat and a, part, and a member of parliament, later became prime minister of England, uh, and then Richard Maine was an attorney, as I, as I recall. And then Charles Rowan was uh, a military man. And so these three very different perspectives were brought together to, uh, to found the London Metropolitan Police Department, which is the department that you know, certainly all British police agencies are modeled after. Uh, but even most, uh, most American police agencies at least took their uh, took their guidance from the London Met um, when when American police departments began to be established in about the 1840s. <clears throat> and so a lot of people, a lot of cops today, would at least recognize the name of Robert Peel, uh, the term that are used that's used for British police officers. Bobby comes from, from Robert Peel's uh, first name. And so we, we recognize, and many people know that uh, know something about what, what are known as Peel's principles. Um, interestingly, as, a, as an historical matter, we can't really find that any of these three gentlemen actually wrote 
what we recognize today as Peel's principles. So we're not exactly sure. And that's, that's one of the things I'd like to talk to them about over this whiskey is, you know, where did these ideas come from? Uh, what were you thinking about when you, when you created something wholly new uh, as an alternative to the military handling uh, public order problems? And what do you think about, um, I would ask him, what do you think about how policing has evolved <clears throat> both in, in, in the United Kingdom and, and here in America? Uh, I think that would be a fascinating conversation. I would have to agree with you. I, when I was in uh, in London a few years back, uh, I think it was 2019, it was about my uh, very brave wife went and wandered around England with me when she was like six or seven months pregnant with our child, but uh, found our way over to New Scotland Yard, and uh, right there in the window was a bust of Sir Robert Peel, um, and I even made it, uh, made it a point to go and find uh, Bow Street uh, and take a picture in front of it uh, for those, uh, the Bow Street runners, which uh, I believe predated uh, uh, the, the Met, uh, but it's right. cer- certainly right. a, a very fascinating history uh, of law enforcement there to go back really to, to the beginning of modern law enforcement, as you said, with Robert Peel. And in, in all three of the police stations uh, that my agency has, uh, Peel's principals are, are hanging on a poster in each briefing room. So it's, it's certainly had a very long-lasting uh, effect on, on modern policing in America. And they're all, I mean, you look at them and um, there's still valid principles to abide by to this day. They've withstood the test of time uh, through the industrial revolution and the technology revolution, and they're still very important to the way that we conduct ourselves as law enforcement officers. I, I appreciate that answer. I, I do. Uh, you're the first one to bring up Robert Peel. Yeah, and uh, I've had the uh, the privilege of uh, over the past several decades of of getting to know a lot of British police and spending some time with them, uh, both here in, in the United States when they come over and my going over to visit with them in, in the UK. And it turns out that they're, they're every bit as much engaged in the same sets of issues that we face in America about um, you know, maintaining um, the public's trust in the police in struggling to to deal effectively with complex policing problems with increasingly scarce resources and so they're that uh, like many american police departments they're very deeply involved in in uh, in using the problem-oriented approach um, and although there are some significant differences in the ways in which our two countries do our policing uh, turns out that uh, police work is, for the most part, pretty similar, uh, no matter where you are. The kinds of social crime disorder problems that are that the police confront uh, tend to be uh, at least similar uh, across the almost the entire world. Yeah, yeah. The one, the one thing, uh, and we're, we're going to dive uh, headlong into uh, the Center for Problem Problem Oriented Policing because that's such a huge part of, of your life and what you've had an impact with. And I've, uh, I was reminded I'm a huge James Bond fan and watching, uh, I think it was Skyfall, one of the newer Daniel Craig movies when Q says the line about, uh, something it's, it's about, a, it's a Rubik's cube that fights back. And that's kind of what I look, uh, it, I, I laugh and I think of the problems that we've run into as police officers and, and, uh, as a profession as a whole. And, and that's what, 
that line seems to fit perfectly is that the, the problems we face are like trying to solve a Rubik's cube that doesn't want to be solved. I, I like that. Um, they really are oftentimes uh, at least three dimensional and sometimes more. And uh, it's one of the things that I, that my mentor who developed the problem oriented approach uh, uh, always talked about that the public uh, tends to grossly underappreciate how complex policing really is and uh, cling to these very simplistic notions that, you know, if the cops would just lock up all the bad guys, all the problems would be solved. And uh, it's never been that simple. And when you, when you really dig into the, the complex problems that the police have to deal with, you realize, you come to realize, well, you know, there are multiple causes and contributing factors to all of these different crime and disorder problems, and police don't control all of the conditions that, that create and cause these crime problems. And so increasingly, police have to learn how to figure out how do we use our, our own authority, which is ultimately limited, but leverage that to get other people to do what they need to do to control these problems better. And that is that is inevitably complex business. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the amount of times as a, uh, though I'm no longer in patrol as a patrol officer, people would, well, Hey, how come you don't just do this? And I would have to tell people, look, I, you know, I'm here. I don't decide the laws. And that seems to be some sort of mind boggling, uh, concept that they can't really, uh, wrap their heads around. And, and the amount of times I told people, if you've got a problem with that law, you need to take it up with the state legislature uh, or, or the, uh, you know, Congress, uh, because I, I didn't come up with it. Um, I'm just here. Yeah, and sometimes, yeah. Uh, uh, but, but increasingly, I think what we're beginning to see is the police themselves recognizing exactly what you described, that we, we alone can't fix this problem, but we might be able to help leverage our authority to get others to do it. And so here's a war story. It was a, I was working in the St. Louis Police Department in the mid-90s, and a patrol officer came, came to my office, and we were talking about the work he was doing up in his, his beat in North St. Louis. And he described a, a public housing complex in which there were, um, it contained a number, uh, the residents were a mix of elderly people, uh, pensioners, and then increasingly younger, sometimes uh, recovering drug addicts. And he came to realize, he, he said, this is, uh, this is causing just a lot of fear among the elderly residents in this complex. Um, it's a bad mix of residents for this facility. And um, and he said, but he discovered that federal law prohibited um, denying denying residents to people who had drug and alcohol addiction. So he said, we're kind of stuck. Well, rather than just leave it at that, uh, the officer, with the encouragement of the department, we were really encouraging officers to do this kind of stuff. He just contacted the United States Senator's office, the U.S. Senator from Missouri, and talked to his staff people and explained the problem. And, you know, several, maybe half a year later, this officer comes into my office with a copy of a letter from the U.S. Senator thanking him and reporting back to him that he had 
subsequently had the federal law changed. And so the the housing facility was was thereby permitted to make more sensible decisions about uh, about the types of residents that would be that would be housed in different public housing facilities. And that all comes from you know one beat cop in one city uh, seeing a problem and understanding its causes, and then not fixing it himself, but at least getting the, the wheels in motion to get the problem addressed effectively. And that almost seems to be an interesting combination of so often uh, as police officers, we are reactive uh, to, by, by our very nature, we are reactive to, to a situation. Person A commits crime, uh, we show up. Um, but that seems to be a, uh, a situation where not only was he reacting to a problem that, that it was occurring in his beat, and, and big shout out to, to that officer for beat integrity and beat ownership. Um, but he's also then being proactive and really thinking outside the box. Um, and and I, I applaud St. Louis Metro for allowing him to think outside the box. I think that there's a lot of officers who, uh, myself included, I never would have considered uh, reaching out to a, to a congressman or a senator. Uh, and then uh, here we have this officer who not only thought about it uh, and, and got outside the box there, but was uh, had had command staff on board uh, for him to make that decision. Yeah, and that was not, uh, and what's important to point out is this, this was not accidental. I mean, it's not that every officer was, uh, was being that proactive or that innovative, but it was the system that we were we were redesigning in St. Louis at the time, as as we had in, in New York City and South Florida and other places I'd been. Um, so management deserves some credit for at least recognizing that uh, the way in which they set up the department, <clears throat> whether or not they actually create a meaningful beat accountability structure where officers can can really say, you know, this is my area. And I'm going to be here for a while, and and it's part of my job is to figure out what's going on here, what's causing it, and to be proactive, and then to give me the support that I need to to do that. So a lot of that was happening back then. I um, I don't know how much of it uh, remains to this day, and that's another issue to discuss: is how do you how do you um, institutionalize some of these good these good innovations in policing? But it does, it makes the point that uh, effective policing requires both management and line officers uh, to, to be on the same page in terms of what officers are expected to do, allowed to do, and, and uh, properly authorized and resourced to do. Absolutely. I, I can think of uh, uh, one instance from uh, my own personal experiences on patrol where I was having a, a very... Uh, severe issue with shoplifting from a local Walmart. And I went to my supervisor and we spoke to the lieutenant and it, it went up to uh, uh, the lieutenant ended up becoming a precinct commander and, and a couple other uh, command staff members were on board and uh, they gave, they gave me a little bit of the freedom to say, Hey, why, why don't you write something up? Uh, ended up doing the uh, PowerPoint, the, uh, the great and powerful PowerPoint that all cops nowadays are so are, uh, very familiar with. Um, uh, and then, uh, we were able to bring in the, uh, like asset protection management, uh, folks from Walmart, as far as our, like our entire regional area. Uh, we have, I think four Walmarts in my city. And so they all came out, 
uh, to a meeting. This was, of course, pre-COVID. Um, and we were able to sit down and, and really roundtable and discuss our options with, hey, how do we more effectively combat shoplifting? Um, and, you know, we were able to implement several other ideas. I mean, it was all part of the scientific process, uh, which is not, again, something that most, I don't know if many officers would ever consider their job to be something where you develop a hypothesis and then subsequently test that and then make changes to your hypothesis based on your results. Um, but, but it's something that hopefully over time, you know, it's, it's not a, a rapid change, but hopefully over time we can begin to, to steer the ship in the, in the other direction and, and begin to eliminate something as, uh, as common as shoplifting, not, I shouldn't say eliminate, but at least, uh, lessen the issue that we continue to run into. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic example of you know, the only thing I would have additionally loved to have seen from your work is, uh, is a, a report summarizing what did you do, how did you do it, what, what results did you have, because it, it helps to make this point. I don't know any jurisdiction, at least in the United States, any police uh, agency that doesn't complain about uh, problems at Walmart. <laughs> just, that is the that is the thing that binds us. We're all we're all family in that regard. <laughs> and so that's one of the uh, when you look into uh, I've got several thousand uh, police reports of what we what we call pop projects, uh, similar to what you just described, and and a number of them relate to uh, Walmart problems in different jurisdictions. So I can point to on our website similar work that the police in Paducah, Kentucky the police in Arlington, Texas, uh, just for two examples, did in, uh, in meeting with and negotiating improved responses to problems at their Walmart. And so uh, as we begin to, to sort of uh, get more proactive and to try new things and to shift some of the responsibility for crime control from the police to those who are controlling the conditions, like a Walmart corporation, uh, we, we begin to see <clears throat> uh, learning from one another and learning from research um, how we can get better at this. And, and that's what I'd love to see is, and have always encouraged, is, is learn from others in your occupation. Uh, find out and, uh, who, who has dealt with a similar problem how do they deal with it? And does their approach have any applicability in my jurisdiction? Well, and that's, that's something that, uh, that looking back again now, I think that uh, knowing uh, a little bit more about, about Pop Center and about the resource that it, that it is, um, if I could go back in time, I'd certainly be pulling up the Pop Center website to, to see what other uh, methods have been, you know, tried and tested, what's worked, what hasn't, what's had a measurable impact. And that would have at least given me, uh, as well as, you know, the, the command staff officers and the other beat officers that were all in this meeting, that would have given us almost like a jumping off point to say, Hey, this is what worked over here. Uh, this is what didn't work. So let's, let's focus on what did work and see if we can't tweak that to more, you know, to fit our, agency's response, uh, our policies and procedures, and see if the folks from Walmart uh, are on board with it. So, um, Yeah, and if you think about it, now, when, I, when I'm teaching officers, uh, I often get them to reflect on a, a wholly different occupation of medicine and get them to, because we've all experienced going into a doctor's office for an appointment, 
and we we go into the doctor's office and we say to the doctor, um, you know, either check me out thoroughly or uh, these are my symptoms. This hurts. This isn't feeling right. And we we take for granted how much information that doctor has available to him or her to help us with our particular ailment or uh, medical problem. And imagine if if none of that medical research existed, there was no information sharing among doctors, that you were entirely dependent on your doctor having seen this particular ailment before and treated it, and that's all they had to go on. Uh, we'd be in a world of hurt. <laughs> we count very heavily on that doctor being able to say, well, I understand. I think I, I know how to diagnose what your ailment is. Uh, I know that there are a half dozen different uh, treatments that might that have been shown to be effective. Now let's customize those options for your particular body, your particular preferences. Well, that's very much what we're trying to to develop in the police profession. We're, we're um, as I said, every age, every community has might have a Walmart problem, but it's going to be. It's going to be different in each community, you know, both in terms of exactly what the, the crime problems are in and around the store, but also as to what the managers of that particular store are willing to do and what the community prefers be done about the problem. So it's a blend of it's a blend of uh, shared knowledge, but, but then customizing it to the local circumstances. Yeah, I mean. It- that's almost a, uh, a revelation, uh, uh, you know, to me and, and it will probably be a revelation to other officers, but it almost, it shouldn't be this, this like biblical revelation to us because we see it. I mean, one thing that, that I've made an effort to, to practice when I was on patrol is to interface with other local agencies that I border against. So the last two years that I was on patrol, uh, my Eastern border was a completely different jurisdiction. Well, that officer and I would routinely, you know, send text messages, call each other, or just meet each other in a parking lot and talk about, you know, okay, hey, I had a shoplift at the Walmart over on my side of the street. This is what this person looked like. And they're probably going to go to the target over on your side of the street. Um, or, hey, this is the car that was stolen. Uh, you know, keep an eye out for it. And it's, it's that information sharing that allows us to be that much more effective. And, uh, here again with, with pop center, there's data and information, um, that, that we can see from, uh, not just a a small jurisdictional subsection, but from the entire nation, uh, to see, Hey, you know, what's, what's close to the problems that we're having, uh, and, and what's, what's been done to combat these problems in the past. And so, uh, you're doing a great job selling Pop Center because even I'm sitting here like, yeah, I'm going to be putting this as a, uh, I'm going to put a link to this on my desktop at work so that I can make sure to access it fairly quickly. Uh, because it's just, to me, it, it's just a, a fantastic option and a tool for, again, officers all the way up to detectives and sergeants and uh, and the chief of police. Yeah, I, I really like the way you're describing that because uh, every patrol officer can recognize that what what happens in the car-to-car exchange where you just pull up and, and talk. A lot of good comes from that, but you can't do that with certainly with every cop, even in your own department. Uh, and you can't do it with uh, cops all over your 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 uh, region, your state, the, 
country or cops in other countries. So, so what we're trying to do is to create a virtual means of doing that. Um, through the POP Center, you can, you can virtually pull up side to side with a police officer in, uh, you know, in Winnipeg, Canada who's dealt with a similar problem as what you're dealing with, or an officer in, in Rhode Island or in the United Kingdom, and at least learn through, through written word uh, what, what's been tried elsewhere. What does that problem look like elsewhere, and what, what seems to work? That's, that's, it's really at the heart, and that's the reason I draw this analogy to the medical profession. This is one of the key elements of what it means to be a profession. And that's really what stimulated myself and a number of colleagues uh, over 20-some years ago to begin this project is we've been talking about since almost since Sir Robert Peel's days, but certainly in the United States since uh, the turn of the last century, um, the turn of the end of the 20th century, this idea of professionalizing the police. And one of the key elements of being a profession is that you have an organized, accessible body of knowledge about how to do that profession's work. And we just didn't have this. It's not that we didn't have smart cops, uh, and it's not that there wasn't some research out there. It's that it, it had never been organized, never made accessible, and never really uh, put in the hands of the practitioners, the police officers, um, and, and that's what that's what we're trying to do. So it's very much part of this whole movement to increasingly uh, make policing a, a genuine profession. Well, and, and long gone, uh, Mike, are the days where you as an agency, you can only get this information through the, the one or two people who had access to uh, written words, you know, written works as far as uh, professional journals or uh, or other, you know, public, uh, published documents. Now you just pull out your phone and you've got a, a, the cliche that we've all been told over the past 10 to 15 years, you've got the entire world's knowledge in about a three by five, you know, card in your pocket in the form of your cell phone. And so why not use that, uh, to, to work on solving these problems. And I would encourage strongly, I'm beginning to sound like one of my supervisors. I would strongly encourage, uh, the, the patrol officers out there do more than the minimum. Uh, and in doing so, use the resources that you have available. Use, use the databases uh, that you've got. Um, you know, you've got databases, uh, CopLink and Accurant that, that can be, you know, brought forward. Accurant's got a great dashboard uh, program as, as far as the software goes. Uh, it, it's a little, uh, little complex. Uh, there's, there's definitely a learning curve with it. But throw pop center, you know, onto put a little thumb icon on your, on your uh, phone and take your job seriously and take it to the next level. Uh, and you know, therein you're going to start to get noticed, uh, in a good way and build your reputation as a solid investigator and a solid police officer, because you're taking that next step as opposed to just going, Oh damn, another shoplift. Okay. Well, all right, you're under arrest. You have the right to remain silent and okay, we're done figure out what else can be done to help combat. And it does, I keep coming back to shoplifts. That's what I dealt with a lot on the road, but uh, you know, racing vehicles, narcotics trafficking, uh, um, child abuse investigations, whatever the case may be, take your job to the next level uh, and, and expand your capabilities uh, as an officer. And it, it it's not 
overly difficult when you have the, this this program just at your fingertips. Yeah, that's uh, uh, that's well said. And um, for all of those problems you just mentioned, we have we've written guidebooks specifically for the police on each of those uh, those crime problems. And and just to pick up on one additional point here, you and I have been talking mostly about patrol officers and what they can do. But <clears throat> this remains unfinished work. All of this responsibility for thinking in a problem-oriented way, in a proactive, in a preventive fashion, should not be dumped just on the patrol officers. There is absolutely no reason that uh, both supervisors all the way up to the chief, as well as specialized officers like detectives, can't make use of the same information and begin to rethink their police function. So in the same way we would say to a patrol officer, your job is, is ought to be more than just reacting to calls for service. We ought to say to a detective, her job is more than just investigating uh, crimes that, that are reported and sent to you by the patrol division. You, too, have the ability and, I would argue, the responsibility to be more proactive. So if you are a, a child sex crimes detective, yes, of course, you've got to work cases. And you've got to try to solve them and do your best on each case. But you also ought to incur some responsibility for thinking about, you know, are we are we dealing with the entire problem of child sex abuse in the most effective manner in this jurisdiction uh, now? And if the answer is no, then, you, then as, uh, as a police detective, as a police official, you say, okay, I... I I can't fix it all by myself, but I can get it started. I can help to make the argument that we need, to, as a community, we need to do better in dealing with this particular problem. Absolutely, and and uh, I mean, it's you're, you're speaking you're speaking directly to my soul, Mike, because I've been a detective for all of four weeks, and one thing that I've I've come across in these last four weeks is how can I how can I do my job proactively uh, because. 99%, well, what seems like 100% of my job is, hey, here's a patrol report. Okay, go. Um, uh, but you bring up a very interesting and valid point that that we, even in the detective bureaus, have the ability to uh, at least make, make the attempt and effort to jump out in front of uh, whatever our specialty problem is, be it uh, sex crimes or child abuse investigations, uh, family violence, property and, and, and auto theft, uh, gangs, narcotics, uh, intelligence, whatever the case may be. Yeah, then it's it's actually kind of interesting the way in which this problem-oriented approach has evolved over, over decades across the country and across the profession. Uh, when I was working with uh, the professor who developed the idea back in Madison, uh, Wisconsin, back in the uh, late, late 70s, early 80s, um, we undertook the, the first test of the idea in working with the police in, in Madison, Wisconsin. One of, the t one of the very first problems that we took on was the repeat sex offender, uh, the repeat violent sex offender. And so uh, most of this <clears throat> was involved the work of our homicide and, and, and serious crimes, persons crimes detectives. And so we never really originally thought that this would be work that, that would be dumped on patrol officers, but rather that this would be especially 
suited for detectives, specialized units, and police administrators. Um, and so to their credit, over the, over the decades, uh, patrol officers in department after department have essentially said to us, you know, uh, we can do this too. We may not be able to do it in the same, dedicate the same amount of time that a detective could to a single problem. Uh, we've got lots of other things to do, but there's absolutely no reason that we can't apply these principles of proactivity and prevention uh, and problem solving and using data to analyze problems, at least uh, to the, the beat level problems that we're confronting every day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at at something as uh, as, as simple as uh, traffic enforcement. I, oh, I don't know that I'd say simple, but as as almost natural uh, to a patrol officer as traffic enforcement. Um, one thing that I appreciated is the exchange of data that would come down from uh, our uh, vehicular crimes unit, as well as from you know that that information would go down to command staff uh, and. Precinct commanders would take things like citizen complaints about traffic in a certain area, um, and and they would then look at it and go, okay, where are our problems? And come to find out that within the beat that I worked, like four out of the 10 most dangerous intersections or five out of the 10 most dangerous intersections in my city were in a, a specific street corridor in my beat. Um, and And as a beat officer, I began to take that almost personally because to me it seemed like, oh, wait a second, Am I allowing this to occur on my watch? Okay, well, I guess I need to step up traffic enforcement in this area with red light runners and stop sign violations and speed violations. And yeah, and that's a it's a it's a it's a good example. And, and actually, traffic problems are almost ideally suited for this kind of proactive and preventive and analytical approach. Uh, just to, to give you a couple of contemporary examples from here in the, the Phoenix metropolitan area. Over the past few couple of years, I've worked with both the Mesa Police Department and the Phoenix Police Department in their efforts to, to try to reduce pedestrian injuries and fatalities. It's one of the most serious traffic problems. <clears throat> and in working closely with the, uh, in Phoenix, with the vehicle homicide unit, <clears throat> the, uh, the det detectives and supervisors who work those crashes we were able to do fairly extensive studies of the problem. They really uh, dug deeply into looking at the, the patterns, the trends, the common factors that are that are uh, causing these pedestrian fatal, especially the fatal crashes. And in both cases, we we ended up producing a very detailed problem-oriented report with a set of recommendations that really are aimed not just at the officers who were investigating the crashes, but to the department, the, the senior levels of the department, and most importantly, to the cities themselves, to the traffic engineering departments and to the city councils and the mayors and the city managers. Because uh, what you begin to realize, what you were just pointing out, is that the crash is just uh, the symptom of the problem. The underlying causes are going to extend to major policy decisions on roadway design and speed enforcement and speed control and medical uh, emergency response. And so if the ultimate objective is we want to reduce the risk that people in our city will die 
desperately, seriously injured from a vehicle crash, uh, you got to get more than just the patrol officers and uh, and the specialist traffic investigators involved in in addressing that problem. Absolutely, you got to get your stakeholders involved. The the people that are going to be able to make the decisions uh, as far as, okay, is a red light camera going to go here? Does this need to be a stop sign instead of a yield sign? Do we need to change speed limits or put in speed bumps or, or those, uh, what are the larger, what the speed tables? Um, yep. yep. Uh, you know, what happens in this area is going to be driven uh, uh, again uh, by those, those, those stakeholders and, and the people who are going to push that, um, are yeah your your mayors your city council the city managers um but i think that the 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 squeakiest wheel uh can can be the citizen um and and i've usually been one to encourage at least you know to to a certain level sharing i I appreciate the idea of transparency with uh with the citizens of your of your area because they're the ones who can actually the ones who, who care enough uh to look at the information can see that Oh, okay. The, the cop that always sits in my neighborhood, he's not doing it just to be a, a jackass, uh, you know, to, to soccer mom, Susie or whatever, but he's doing it because, oh, like 14 kids have been hit on bikes at this stop sign intersection. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's sort of near and dear to my own heart, uh, as a, as a patrol officer, of course, um, you know, I learned how to run radar. And I, I did my bit, knew how to write a speeding ticket, and, and I did what I could. Um, but it wasn't really until uh, I had started, created this pop center, and, and one of the very first pop guides that we decided to write for the police was on speeding in residential areas. So I took it on. I was going to write it. And I collected all, all the available studies on this problem to research, hundreds of articles, and, and read all the, the different police uh, pop reports that I could. And I learned something about speed uh, control that I didn't, I never knew as, as a patrol officer, that uh, people tend to drive uh, at the speed at which they think it is safe to drive. And by safe means the fastest they can go without crashing and injuring themselves. And that the major influence on a person's perception uh, of how fast it is safe to drive is the physical design of the roadway. And so no matter what we do in terms of speed limit signs, people are going to drive at speeds that seem suitable for the roadway. And that uh, this light bulb went off in my head and said, well, then, you know, all the speed enforcement in the world isn't going to fix that perception. Really what we, the main thing we need to do is to redesign roadways. So I then discovered this whole world of what's known as traffic calming that's, ba- that's built entirely on that basic principle that you've got to design the, the roadway in a fashion that will encourage people to drive at the speed you want them to drive. And that, that implicates, so in, in cities that have adopted these two dozen or more different traffic calming measures, you know, everything from the speed humps to the roundabouts to uh, chicanes and, and build-outs and all kinds of traffic islands. Um, it's critically important that the, the police and the traffic engineers consult with the, with the people, consult with the community. You know, would you want to have this kind of a new roadway design in your neighborhood? So I see them popping up here in, in Phoenix, uh, 
different different uh, methods, and all of them are dis- are intended to reduce the need to put a police officer out there to write people speeding tickets. So you simply redesign the roadway, and people will just naturally begin to, to slow down or drive the appropriate speed. Well, and that uh, that that has a a light bulb moment for me uh, for anybody who's attended. Uh, well, when I went through it, it was the Arizona Law Enforcement Academy, and it's changed its name about 44 times since then. But it's basically the Phoenix Police Academy. Um, they were I'm not a Phoenix police officer. They're bringing in agencies from all over uh, the metro area and, and really the state as well, but primarily the metro area. But if you left eastbound from the academy, um, uh, you'd eventually come to a, a, a road that that bears north, uh, basically forces you to turn turn north and uh, going northbound on that street, what would ordinarily be a straight line to, I believe, baseline road where you could probably get up 70, 80 miles an hour if you really felt like you wanted to. Um, there, I do remember now seeing distinct signs that say traffic calming in effect. And it is those those chicanes and the road islands and the speed bumps. And yeah, you're not going to take your your car 70 miles down that street. Um, because it's just, you just realize now I'm probably going to wreck if I do that. I'm not an, I'm not an indie car driver. Uh, I'm not an off-road race driver. Like I, I need to drive with the conditions of the roadway, um, which, uh, forced you to go, uh, down to about that 35 mile an hour range where it was, uh, hopefully safer, uh, to, to drive. Yeah, that's right. In fact, it reminds me, I used to work a, a police beat in which uh, we were always under kind of community pressure and, and trickle down through sergeants would tell us, get out there and write tickets at this stretch of roadway. And this particular stretch of roadway was about uh, maybe a mile and a half, uh, dead straight, uh, cemeteries on both sides, and uh, and people would would uh, drive really fast. And I kid you not, the name of that roadway was called Speedway Road. <laughs> and it always, so I'd go out there and I'd write my tickets. And the traffic unit would, uh, <clears throat> you know, as uh, cops listening will recognize, it was a fishing hole. You could just go to the one end of uh, Speedway Road and you could write tickets all day long. And, it, you know, it finally occurred to me decades later that, you know what? <laughs> why don't they redesign Speedway Road? And if you just did that, uh, you wouldn't make it so tempting and so uh, seemingly reasonable for people to drive at those, uh, at those high speeds. Yeah, so I, it is, it, it's just a different way of thinking about the problem. Well, absolutely. And again, it's those outside the box uh, solutions and, and some places are afraid of outside of the box solutions and some places really appreciate them. But, uh, yeah, the fishing hole, uh, <laughs> I remember, uh, being on patrol, uh, again, in that, in that one beat, the, the problem that I recognized, uh, uh, probably second to shoplifting was speeding on one particular road. And I had my spot where even in a fully marked police car, I would sit off on a canal bank on the South side of the street and run uh, LIDAR, uh, which is the, the laser speed reader. And I would routinely right 45 mile an hour zone. And I would routinely get people upwards of 70 uh, miles per hour. I think the fastest I ever clocked somebody was 88 miles an hour um, because it's just a, it's just a straight. Well, and so much of the Phoenix Metro area is just a, a it's a grid system. Um, uh, for those of you that have never been over in, in this side of uh, in this part of the world, but yeah, just to routinely get people between 70 and 90 miles per hour in a 45 mile an hour zone. Uh, and I will uh, 
say honestly that it never occurred to me that, hey, you know what we should do is redesign the roadway. Yeah, when you step back from this this problem, um, but it, it's not just with speeding, but speeding is a classic example. When you reflect on what what we've asked the police to do, we build a roadway. We build it in a, a nice wide roadway in a fashion that encourages people to drive really fast. And then we tell the police, uh, they're driving too fast, so go out there and write some tickets. So we do. We go out and we write some tickets. And we've come to understand that one of the surest ways to piss off a citizen is to write them a ticket, <laughs> especially to write them for a ticket for driving too fast on a roadway where it seems to them that they're driving a reasonable speed. And so we're collectively alienating our communities with traffic enforcement that is both uh, unpopular and ineffective. It's not reducing the speed uh, for any longer than, than we're sitting out there. And uh, and so all along, right in front of us, and right in front of our eyes, the solution really should have been a traffic engineering solution rather than a speed enforcement solution. And that would have not only the effect of making it a safer community to drive in and to walk and bike in, but also one in which people didn't resent their police as much as they might. Well, and then you that, that seems to almost lead into successes in other areas where if you have a community that doesn't resent their law enforcement officers, they're, they're more willing to be on board with working with their law enforcement officers when we need their help. Um, Absolutely. You know, the, the number of times where where I'd go to talk to say, Hey man, what'd you see? No, I'm not talking to you. Um, okay. Well, you know, Hey, I, you're a witness. I got to at least put you down on my report. And then you go and you, you run their name and you find out that, you know, two years ago they were written speeding tickets, you know, three times or whatever the case may be. Uh, and, and even though you're not that cop, you are, you know, the badge is the same, the shoulder patch is the same. And they've got this negative experience there. I actually, uh, a good friend of mine, Phil, who now is a, a motor officer, somebody whose job it is to do traffic enforcement, um, had a great, uh, a great take on it from a very early stage of his career. He's been on about a year longer than I have. Um, and he would always remind the new officers who were just so hell bent and gung ho on, yeah, I'm going to pull over everything that moves for every traffic violation. You got a license plate light out. Uh, your taillight is cracked, showing a white light to the rear. You don't have mud flaps on your lifted pickup truck. Uh, Phil would very, very, you know, simply ask you, how many times uh, do you think that person is going to interact with a law enforcement officer this year? If you're going to be the one interaction that that person has, should it be a positive one or a negative one? And that changed, uh, I mean, my whole take. I, I would still write tickets when tickets needed to be written, but that really changed kind of my whole outlook on on public interaction when you did, you know, you did pull somebody over, you did stop somebody uh, for, for shoplifting or for, you know, a, a bicycle violation, whatever the case may be. Yeah, and I don't, I, I think we, we all too often... I'm going to blame the police, the patrol officers, and the, and the uniformed officers and say, well, you're responsible for, for the bad police community relations. You're not, you're not treating people nicely. And I think more often than not, it's the officers are doing almost exactly what we in management have asked them to do, what we, the community, we, the, uh, the government officials have asked them to do. And then we act surprised when it, when it alienates the public. Well, 
the responsibility is really with management to say, you know, this is uh, this is the way the job is done. And so, as it relates to traffic enforcement, uh, it's another war story. Um, as I'm a police chief down in South Florida, and I knew this day would come. It inevitably comes to every police chief. You get a, fo- a phone call from the finance department saying ticket revenue is down. So I, I get the I, I get the call one day, and the finance director explicitly says. Chief, uh, ticket revenue is down. We're not going to meet our budget projections. Can you ask your officers to write more tickets? And I, I was I was prepared for it, and so I very uh, cheerfully told him, absolutely not. Uh, I will not do that. <laughs> it's a violation of our policy because I'd written a policy that explicitly said that police officers should not make their enforcement decisions based on revenue. And uh, and that's just it's just does a great disservice to the police to effectively use punishment um, fines of citizens as a means of funding the government. It just creates a perverse incentive, a financial incentive for for a response to a problem that is both ineffective and likely to alienate uh, citizens. And it doesn't mean that I don't think people ever ought to be fined or or disciplined or punished, but just that it should never be done for purposes other than uh, reasonable deterrence and doing justice in that particular case, never for revenue. One thing I appreciated about the agency that I work for uh, is uh, long prior to my arrival, they they decided to uh, do away with quotas uh, for patrol officers, which was the nice thing about that is that when you inevitably did pull somebody over, oh, are you just trying to meet your quota today? And you could honestly tell that person whether or not they cared is a different story, but you could honestly tell that person, we don't operate in quotas. I'm not incentivized to pull people over. Uh, There is nothing driving me to pull people over other than the fact that, uh, you know, I'm here, I'm attempting to do uh, at least one part of my job as a proactive law enforcement officer. um, And I'm, uh, you know, or, or I'm being reactive to a problem that I have, but I never uh, wanted to work for an agency that said you will make this many traffic stops per week because I also think that 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 may drive away certain officers. Not every officer is going to be that person that says I'm going to go and stop all those cars. Um, you know, you may have an officer on a team who is uh, the best investigator for auto theft, and you know, or the best investigator as a, at the patrol level for sex crimes and pulling somebody over is not necessarily their forte. Should they have a basic understanding of how to do it? Absolutely. Should they do it when they see a, uh, a violation uh, where that would uh, basically require them to make that stop? Yeah. Should they be proficient? Yes. But um, to, to demand officers conduct X number of traffic stops and write X number of tickets versus warnings. Uh, I, I can't agree with you more, Mike, that it, it does truly alienate uh, the community which you're trying to serve. Here you are saying, I'm here for you. Enjoy your speeding ticket. And that's, uh, if, if I'm having my whiskey with, with Robert Peel, uh, I, I think he would say, uh, you're, this is exactly one of the things you, you misunderstood about what I said. Because he did say explicitly that the purpose of the police is, uh, is to prevent crime. And he explicitly said, uh, police effectiveness is not to be measured simply by the enforcement actions that the police take in dealing with a problem. 
you measure success by the prevention of the harm. And so as it, as it applies to traffic, and the two measures are uh, traffic crashes and traffic congestion. If traffic crashes are getting uh, less frequent, less serious, and, and traffic is less congested, less backed up, police have done their job. How they achieve that is really beside the point, except to say that if you could achieve it without having to write a lot of tickets, then all the better, because you then get uh, achieve the objective in reduction of harm without having to to use coercive authority, which is something Appeal also talked about over and over. The less the police have to use their coercive authority, uh, the greater trust they will have from the public. And, and I think we just waste a lot of our goodwill in traffic enforcement, in the misguided belief that this is it's basically all, all we're authorized to do. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with, with, uh, with really everything that you've just said, and that doesn't always happen uh, with with guests on the show. But um, your your past work uh, and your your current work, not only with Pop Center, but you know, I'm sure back to your days as a patrol officer in, in Madison, um, you you've taken. Uh, Again, what what is, but maybe shouldn't be an outside the box approach to policing. Um, you know, I think breaking that mold of well, this is the way we've always done things is one of the most important changes that we as police officers can make with policing in in the 21st century within modern America. Is we we've got to be able to to roll with the punches, but we've got to be able to see that okay. We've been making again, and we'll just stick with the traffic stop. You know, we've been making traffic stops for nearly a hundred years. People are still speeding, so you can make more traffic stops, or you can try and work the problem a different direction. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so we we have we've discovered that uh, the traffic calming actually works a whole lot better. And over time, there's a little adjustment for for drivers, but uh, most people learn just to adapt to it. And um, and people who who live in a neighborhood where there's a lot of speeding, which creates a lot of noise and risk of crashes, they'd much rather have uh, have a few of these traffic calming measures in there, where people were driving at slower speeds all the time, and and their kids were were safe. So uh, yeah, I mean, we often use this. Well, this is the way we've always done it, but usually that's a distorted understanding of history, and that's where Peel's principles uh, remind us that well, no, this is not the way in which we're doing things today is not necessarily the way it was intended. And there are times in our history where we had a better understanding of these key principles than uh, than we might today. To some extent, we we've, we've lost a bit of our perspective. In, in, and, and it's reflected in the term that we use. I understand why we do it, but the, when we call ourselves law enforcement officers, I think we do ourselves a disservice. It suggests that we are very narrow in our mission. <clears throat> That's all we do is enforce the law. That's all we're capable of doing. That's all we're expected to do, and that has never been true of police. So I prefer the term police officer uh, to law enforcement officer because a police officer is a much more skilled, uh, uh, intelligent, thoughtful, uh, 
uh, and sophisticated a professional than somebody whose job is limited to understanding the statute and, and enforcing it. Right. It helps to be the uh, helps to be the toolbox instead of just you know one of the tools within. Yes. Good. Well put. I uh, uh, to to change gears a little bit here. You did spend uh, uh, a couple years as the chief of police for for Lauder Hill, Florida uh, Police Department. Um, with what we've been talking about with these outside the box uh, approaches to to the issues facing law enforcement uh, or excuse me, police agencies, I will make the concerted effort now to, to change up the way that I look at it as well. Um, but uh, there seems to be a, a struggle nationwide with, with recruiting, um, which I would say is uh, a, a response to, you know, cause and effect um, uh, to 2020 and the, the high profile uh, incidents that occurred, you know, in custody deaths, officer involved shootings, Having been the chief of police for an agency uh, of of north of a hundred officers, uh, what do you think is going to be the the best route um, for us to to combat some of the problems and and to to well to to work the problems that we face with what is uh, an impending shortage uh, potential shortage of police officers? Well, it's it's really everything we've been talking about. It's it's. Uh, institutionalizing these ideas that we're talking about and really uh, turning the job of policing uh, away from this this narrow law enforcement function to what I think it was always intended to be a broader public safety function. And uh, this idea of giving officers both responsibility for policing a particular community or policing a set of problems, but also the expectation that they, the freedom to think a bit more creatively, uh, more proactively, more preventively, and not to assume that they, the police, have sole responsibility for fixing these complex social problems. And um, this, I think, is probably responsive to, we've been in the this, this kind of era before, in the, the late 60s, early 70s, it was similar. Uh, a lot of people, young people, did not want to become police officers because uh, more the reality then, the police were simply seen as the hired muscle of the political establishment. They're just there to, to hassle people, to, to lock them up, to make their lives uh, uh, difficult. And a lot of young people would say, I don't want any part of that. I'll be I'll be hated among uh, my peers, uh, um, and and again, that's the responsibility of of leadership to say that's not the, that shouldn't be the nature of the police job. But we do our officers a great service by not giving them both responsibility and the ability to be and to be perceived as being more helpful, more absolutely essential to the safety and the well-being and the security of the people that they're policing. And I've just seen this and from my own experiences and in every police agency, I think I'm now in my seventh police agency that I've worked in, uh, the cops are capable of doing what we're talking about. And the community responds well to it. Even today, most people in the United States, they, they might have some reservations about the police, but they... They, they want the police, they need the police, and they want the police to be helpful. 
And so it's, it's a restructuring uh, of policing um, that I think is going to be critical to responding to this current uh, hesitancy on the part of some people to become police officers. We need to change the nature of the job so it allows more realistically people to achieve what almost all of us said in our in our interviews when we got hired. We decided to do this job because we want to help people. Uh, let's make that a reality. Absolutely. I mean, all of us, and, and, and yeah, you hit the nail on the head because I know those words came out of my mouth and I still to this day, believe them. I can remember being in the academy and the uh, the uh, director of the police academy came in and asked us all, you know, why are you here? Um, and my response was simply that uh, I think everybody's put on this planet for a reason. And mine was to be a police officer. Um, but but you look at, you know, to take if he had taken that question one step further of, OK, well, why do you feel that that's a reason? I would say most of us are, are drawn, uh, you know, the the cliche of it's a calling. Well, I mean, it, it's a cliche, but it's true that we're drawn to this profession um, because it asks more of us, because it gives us the opportunity to to be more than just the sum of who we are um, and, and to work, you know, with with like minded people and now, uh, or at least I wouldn't say now, but what should be on the forefront of every new recruit's mind and what the rest of us need to remember and maybe relearn is that we're here to help the community. We're not here to, to help ourselves or fulfill our own, uh, you know, personal prophecies. Uh, but we need to get out there. I've always told people that you're not going to build relationships from behind a windshield. Now COVID notwithstanding, put your mask on and get out of your car. Um, uh, you know, as far as working with the community, um, I can think of several occasions where uh, myself and, and several of my teammates, and I'm sure that there have been other officers across the nation who ask this question, uh, but you have to care enough to ask, is to to go up to a citizen, and I can guarantee you that their mouths will drop, at least momentarily, when you go up to somebody and say, oh, hi, my name's Kevin with such and such police department. How can I do more for you? And be genuine, and then listen. Just Keep your mouth shut and listen to what that person has to say. Yeah, very, very well said. And again, I, I agree. <clears throat> yeah, we want all of our individual officers to, to come to the job and maintain a proper attitude and orientation along the ways you're, you're talking about. <clears throat> but it put as much responsibility on management, the chiefs, <clears throat> on down to the sergeants. Say, okay, if you want your officers to think that way to, then, and behave that way, you have to structure police work such that they it's not only possible for them to act that way, it is expected and it is supported. And um, that requires some, some changes that uh, the line-level officer uh, can't make by him or herself. Right, absolutely. Um, and I am curious to see, uh, you know, over the course, I've only been doing this for four years, and I got to hit 25 to retire. Um, and who knows, maybe I'll go, I mean, I work with, with uh, officers who have been, they've been doing this longer than I've been alive, you know, 30 plus years. Uh, but I'm curious where uh, my generation and the ones after me uh, take the profession of law enforcement. I, I wonder if it's going to be this ebb and flow where we have uh, you know, as you said, this is this is a mirror image of of the the late '60s and early '70s. Uh, you know, with with the civil unrest of of, of 1968, um, uh, and and 
the Vietnam War going on, we have a lot of a lot of mirror images in that we've got civil unrest uh, now, you know, from last year up to now, um, uh, that is uh, driven by by a lot of uh, uh, racial uh, issues within our country. Uh, we've got that long, uh, drawn out war, uh, you, um, you know, where we're still. Uh, we've still got units being deployed to Afghanistan 20 years later, um, and and the country is just exhausted. And I'm, cur- I'm curious to see, uh, you know, what's going to happen and where. When I look back on my career, the day that they give me my little inscribed pen in my shadow box and I get into my car never to return to a police uniform, uh, I'm curious to look back uh, and and see what changes have been made and implemented, and if if I'm going to look back and go. Hey, we did a good job. Or if I look back and go, well, that could have been done a lot better. Yeah, that's uh, again well said. But uh, and and why I like always coming back to to thinking about the London Metropolitan Police in 1829 and and what lessons that holds for us today. You know, ever since the development of the modern police, again as primarily as an alternative to military force control society. You know, there have been, uh, we have learned and forgotten and had to relearn the same lessons over and over and over again, and we probably always will. But the core lessons, many of which are embodied in Peel's principles, remain as true today, and they will be true in the future. This is not going to be solved by technology. It's not going to be solved by, you know, privatization of the police function. It's not going to be, we're not going to magically get rid of the police altogether uh, and live in a self-policing society. It's not going to happen. But we know these core principles, and we just have to get back to them time and time again. <clears throat> and they really do involve, you know, building this relationship in which, yes, the police are, are uh, do have coercive authority, but they use it judiciously and carefully. They're always listening to the public and to the people, and they're they're always looking to identify the problems and prevent them rather than just react to them. And all of those things I've seen at work in in New York City during the height of the crack cocaine epidemic, where we had over 2,000 murders a year uh, in, in the same circumstances in St. Louis, uh, where we had record high homicides, and the same in South Florida. In every agency and community I've been in, we have applied, when we have applied these half dozen to a dozen core principles to policing, uh, the community responds favorably to it, and importantly, so too do police officers. So I regret that we uh, we seem determined to lose our way every couple of decades, but uh, but the road back is is never much different. Sure, sure, and and being being a part of that road back uh, as a an officer, I th- I mean saw it all last year a little bit with myself, certainly with with uh, you know officers across the country, uh, the just sheer exhaustion of. You know, okay, am I am I going to be ambushed today? There seems to constantly be cops being killed more than on a more than a I don't, dare I say normal uh, set of circumstances. It was certainly higher last year, and and oh, I can't get out of my car without somebody saying a cab or this, that, and the other thing. But I think being a part of that road back um, uh, will 
help get a lot of officers provided they're willing to be a part of that road um, and and get on that get on that train so to speak um, but I think that that will also help uh, when you improve officers morale I think that you improve their ability to serve their community um, so so hopefully you know well and I, and I would also flip that around and say when you improve their ability to serve their community you thereby improve their morale um, it, I've just seen that happen. And we just, again, we deny too often the opportunity and the structure and the support for police officers to police in a way that will allow them to be welcomed, respected, trusted in the communities that they police. And, uh, you know, driving around aimlessly in a police vehicle, uh, just stopping and frisking people, just writing tickets, just arresting people, you know, all of that is necessary at times, but that is not the formula for uh, for really truly productive, trustworthy, uh, preventive and effective policing. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm reminded of when I was still thinking about what I was going to do. Uh, uh, I will admit that I was uh, deciding whether or not to be a firefighter or a police officer. Insert your jokes now, uh, listeners. But uh I was riding with a buddy of mine, uh, Jeff, who uh, was a Phoenix police officer, and he worked uh, somewhere along the I-17 and Dunlap area in, in central Phoenix there. Uh, Jeff was a, <clears throat> a just as uh, he's a, a Caucasian police officer policing a largely Hispanic area, and he could have taken the route of, I'm just going to drive around aimlessly and, uh, you know, look for cars that don't, you know, that look like they're going to have uh, you know, warrants or guns or drugs, uh, or I can stop and frisk people on the street. And I have a distinct memory of Jeff, uh, taking me to uh, a low income neighborhood. I, I think it was a, was actually like a, a trailer park basically. And he got out and was immediately surrounded by all these neighborhood kids. And he was speaking Spanish and uh, all these kids were smiling and the parents were coming out and, and just having a very good conversation with Jeff. Um, and the next week I was riding with Phoenix fire department in that same area. Um, and all these little kids, uh, came running over, uh, Oh, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. And they remembered me just as a bystander of Jeff's interaction with them. Um, and, and that's the kind of, uh, I think that's what we, we keep coming back to, uh, Mike, you and I is that, that community involvement and that engagement is going to pay off dividends in the end to the point where, you know, me not having at the time been a police officer, I've got these Phoenix firefighters looking at me like, what the hell? We're, like, how do these kids know who you are? Uh, oh, well, they're really good friends with the cop who patrols this area. And if you could say that in any neighborhood in America, you're going to start to see the changes that we all want to see. Exactly. And I've seen it in a lot of those neighborhoods. And I don't think I've ever seen a neighborhood where that couldn't have, where a police officer couldn't achieve that. Um, but it does take it, it, it again. It takes a it takes a, a rediscovery of basic principles and sometimes a reconfiguration of the way departments are organized and managed and and uh, and operated to bring that about. So I'm 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 optimistic. Yeah, as, as am I. Always bounce back from uh, from these critical times, and I'm confident we'll do it again. Well, and I am, again, just to, to kind of switch gears a little bit, having having seen the turmoil in, in the late 60s into the 70s, what drew you into into becoming a, a patrol officer there in Madison? 
Uh, well, I think I, I like a lot of people. I got the, the idea in my head as, uh, as a teenager, maybe 15 years old, and I just thought of a half dozen different occupations I might have. But, so I was uh, originally just lured into it by, uh, I loved the police cars that the cops in my town drove at the time, and I thought, that's a really cool car. I'm going to drive that around fast one day. And that, that, more than anything, kind of got me hooked. And then during college, I I had the good fortune of being able to study policing and to study with uh, with one of the, the world's leading police scholars. And it was right about the time that I learned about um, he was developing the problem-oriented approach to policing. And he had previously worked uh, in the Chicago Police Department as, a, as an administrator and an assistant to the superintendent. So he had a lot of experience. And the way in which he, he understood... Uh, both what policing could be and the reasons why it was the way it was. And so although I, uh, I can say I did eventually get to drive that, that cool squad car, my, my real reasons for becoming a police officer uh, came about from understanding what good the police really can do in society and what a positive difference uh, policing can make when it's done done the right way. And I, uh, 40 plus years later, uh, I've never lost that same, that same sense. And um, every opportunity I've had to leave policing, I have, I have turned away from and I've stayed in this for the entire, my entire career in different capacities. Um, but I continue to have, as you do, that same sense that it is both uh, the job of the police to make society better, and it is possible if you do it a certain way. Absolutely. And was it those same driving principles that, that uh, you did you take those? I was, I'm going to say the answer is yes, but to get your take on it, um, you, you took those principles with you to, to Lauder Hill, uh, Florida. Speak, if you can, uh, you know, just, uh, just briefly about uh, what challenges you faced with, with starting a brand new agency from the ground up? Oh, well, I can tell you, I never worked so hard in my life. <laughs> uh, from the day that I hit the ground, uh, moved from St. Louis to South Florida, uh, I think I had a total of four months to have a police department up and running. And uh, the city was policed by the sheriff's department under contract. And there was already a drop-dead date for when the sheriff was leaving town. And so I had to, to put that together. So what what it really showed me is every other police department I'd worked in prior to that time had already existed for a good 150 years. And nobody really had to think hard about uh, what does it take to create a police department. I, I, I looked, but I couldn't find any manual for how to do it. So I was literally just making things up. Uh, writing down lists of things we would need to buy. Uh, need some bullets, and need some guns, and need some uniforms, and some cars. And, um, and so it was just an enormous amount of work to do it. But uh, I was determined to also, given the opportunity to build this police department in uh, around the ideas of, uh, of problem-oriented policing to make it a problem-oriented agency. So it... it it was a very rewarding experience in, a, in being able to essentially build from the ground up an, an agency in one's own, uh, to one's own liking. 
Um, doesn't mean that I could control that. It's one of the things you learn as being a police chief is you maybe have a lot of authority and power, but uh, it's not it's not unbounded. And you're hiring. We were hiring officers who had been police officers in other places, and they brought with them some of their own historical expectations. And the community had its own expectations. So you never get to start entirely from scratch. But it was uh, it, it it was really a quite a rewarding experience to be able to to develop a police organization that at least whether you agreed with it or not it it was at least coherent, meaning um, all that we were doing was really built around a common set of principles and, and ideas, and not not sort of pulling in three or four different directions, which often happens. And, in older police departments. Sure, I am. Uh, I, I look at, uh, for you and I locally, Queen Creek, uh, Arizona, is just starting their own police department. And uh, I can remember thinking, oh, I wonder if they're ever going to, you know, they've got their own fire department. I wonder if, if police department's next. And uh, it was many a locker room discussions of, like, where do you even begin when you have to start an entire new police department? You talk about, I, I have to imagine, Mike, that you just sat there at a desk with a, you know, uh, a pen and a piece of paper in front of you and, again, just made that wish list of, okay, well, uh, there's no manual for this. Okay, we need, like you said, we need cars and guns and bullets and uniforms and, oh, well, hell, we're going to need somebody to handle evidence processing and property and uh, we're going to need a, a building. Then those aren't inexpensive. I have to imagine that uh, uh, that I would probably turn uh, to that that whiskey that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> I think I think I just sit there and go, what in the hell am I doing? <laughs> well, I will say the only thing they did have was uh, a building and the sheriff's office had a building. We had a police station, although they wouldn't let us in it until midnight of the day. <laughs> Maybe very helpful. The day that we were taking <laughs> over operations. So it, it was complicated by the, the sheriff's department was not happy about essentially being fired. And so they were not real eager to make it a smooth transition. Uh, but ultimately, the sheriff at the time was actually a former municipal cop and very bright guy, and he and I got along fine. And although the rest of his department was not eager to see me succeed, he was. And so, uh, you know, we made it happen. Um, it was it was literally down to the wire. Uh, within a couple of hours, of, uh, a couple hours before they started patrol, is when I the uniforms were delivered and the radios. And and so. Um, Years later, I did help to, to write a guidebook for starting a new police department. Um, but it is a, it, it, it's a somewhat rare experience, and you come to deeply appreciate just how much is involved in this enterprise of policing. It is, again, as I said before, an enormously complex undertaking. When people don't understand that, they uh, that's where we often go wrong. Yeah, that's uh, one thing I've always told people about uh, police departments is it's a big machine with a whole lot of moving parts, uh, and you need you need people who are experts in those moving parts. But just because you understand how the transmission works doesn't mean you know how the brakes work. Yeah, good analogy. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I am filled with all sorts of strange analogies. Uh, they they come to me every now and then. Uh, Mike, I think uh, uh, I. 
our time is uh, is beginning to wind down here. Uh, I, I do want to want to leave off uh, with this: is you've got a microphone literally to the world. Every every so often, uh, I pull up the analytics on the podcast page and find that there's people in Australia or Brazil or Europe listening to this show. So you've got a microphone uh, uh, to to the world. Uh, what does what does the world need to hear? What what last little bit of wisdom can you impart on the international community? Well, coincidentally, just uh, just as the COVID uh, pandemic was getting started, I found myself at the invitation of the New Zealand police. So I was there in New Zealand uh, working with the New Zealand police, and they were they were having a, a conference on their problem-oriented approach to policing. And the, the, the changes in the way the New Zealand police were operating, in particular in the way in which they were relating to their indigenous communities were were so much improved from uh, from what had been historically true and so my I guess my lesson um, to I've even recently been having similar discussions with police leaders in Afghanistan um, and they recognize that some of these same principles we're talking about are needed in, in, in that society as well in thinking about so my, my message to the world would be, there is no such thing as perfect policing, but there is better and worse policing. And the difference is all the difference in the world to the, the success and vitality and the stability of, of society. Police are absolutely essential to them, and all who are responsible for policing um, are obliged to understand these core principles, to understand the successes we've had in policing, the mistakes we've made in policing, um, and to and to apply those lessons of success to policing in, in every society. Uh, a lot depends on it, um, but it uh, but it is possible. Absolutely, there's uh, the the changes that can be made. It's uh, it doesn't have to be an insurmountable uh, uh, you know change. It doesn't have to be this this gigantic mountain, even if it is a gigantic mountain. I'm sure that you know I, I will I will go with uh, with this as as a uh, as kind of a space geek, uh, a NASA nerd. Is that for the entirety of human civilization, we've all looked up at the moon and thought, oh, it'd be really cool if we could go there, and then. Uh, you know, in, in the late 1960s, uh, we, we finally went there and we put people on the moon, uh, with a computer, uh, that is vastly over, you know, uh, underpowered by today's standards. Uh, so even something that seemed at one time to be insurmountable is now just a, a footnote in history. And it's something that, that is, uh, you know, oh, Hey, now we can go back kind of whenever we want. So, um, and just as of yesterday, we have a vehicle driving around on Mars. Right, right. Through a completely different, uh, I mean, the hell, we could, we could spend another hour on that one. Through, I, was, I had that on uh, in the background at work, if, unless my sergeant is listening to this podcast, in which case I did not have that on in the background of my computer uh, while I was uh, working yesterday. Um, but yeah, not only did we go to Mars, we went there and uh, we landed something in a completely different means or a completely different fashion than we've ever done before, and, and it worked. So, um, you know, the the odds uh, may or may not be stacked against uh, against us at certain times, but damn it, if we can't get through that, uh, yeah, we we can do it. We just have to want to. You got to have the drive. So, uh, that's right. 
with that, Mike, I, I, again, greatly appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today, sir. Uh, certainly have inspired me. I've been toying with the idea of going back for my master's degree. Um, and, uh, uh, I think that well, I'm, you'll you'll be welcome, and I'll be here. Uh, excellent, so excellent. I've, I've enjoyed it. Kevin. There's uh, there's I've got a lot of professors at ASU who I, I greatly appreciated. Uh, you know, people always want to uh, poo poo Arizona State University for some reason or another, but uh, I came out of there and had a job within six months of graduating. So uh, <laughs> there's there's my plug for ASU to my listeners. Uh, popcenter.asu.edu is where uh, where you want to go to try and come up with some of your your solutions uh, uh, with problem-oriented policing. Take a look at it. I was just pulling it up on my phone just now. It's extremely well uh, laid out, even from, I sometimes will get onto uh, mobile websites and, and they're just terrible. I might as well be using dial-up uh, in 1999. But no, go on to, to uh, popcenter.asu.edu. Stay tuned to uh, Blue Line Millennial for more. Follow us on, uh, I say us, I have this big problem where I, I talk in the plural a lot, uh, Follow me on Instagram, uh, Facebook. I'm more partial to Instagram just because to me it's more user-friendly. And I am uh, working on that uh, website, uh, bluelinemillennial.com, as we speak. Uh, that is my weekend project in addition to uh, keeping my one-year-old from driving my wife insane. Uh, and if you certainly have any questions, bluelinemillennial at gmail.com. I want to thank everybody for listening today. Stay safe, and we'll see you on the road.